Some of you may not recognize uh, Hardin Young or know who Hardin Young is. He was the gentleman who introduced to us the uh, two uh, most recent additions to the Elder Board. And I want to say again what I said to the uh, to the first hour. Uh, I, as I was sitting there listening to Hardin and reflecting back on the ten years that we spent together, I just have to tell you how much I love that man. Uh, he is a real sidekick of mine. Us old geezers have to stick together. And uh, he's an old warrior. He's been here far longer than I and has borne a lot of the hard shots, taken a lot of the tough times. And there are a couple of passages that come to mind when I think about Hardin. The first is uh, the statement in, in the book of Proverbs. Every man will proclaim his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. Uh, all of us like to talk about how great we are. The really tough thing is to find a man or woman who is truly faithful. And that is hard and young. The other passage that comes to mind is one in the book of Ecclesiastes. The uh, philosopher there says that wisdom softens the face of a man. Some men start out tender and learn to be tough. Harden started out tough and has learned over the years to be tender. God has tenderized his heart, and it's just been great to see the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in that man and, and to see the wisdom that the Lord has taught him. Uh, Harden really is quite well known. You know, he's sort of a prophet without honor. Everywhere I, I go and talk to people, they say, oh, you're from Boise. Do you know Harden Young? And he, He's been the uh, chairman of a number of boards of national organizations, and he's better known outside of, of Boise than he is right here. And he has devoted his time to us faithfully over the last, uh, oh, I don't know, 15, 18 years. Just been God's servant to us. I just want you to know that I appreciate him. Now, will you turn to the 11th chapter of Joshua? <clears throat> Joshua chapter 11. We come now to the final conflicts in the book. I mentioned when I introduced the uh, the study some months ago that the book of Joshua divides exactly in half. The first 12 chapters of the book have to do with the conquest of the land of Canaan. The last 12 chapters from 13 through 24, the distribution of the land. We've come now to the end of the conquest phase of the book. And the final battle that's described in detail, the battle uh, with the king of Hatsor and the kings that were, that were allied with him. Let me begin reading with verse 1 of chapter 11. I'll read through verse 5. That will give us the setting to the story. When Jabin, king of Hatsor, heard of this, that is the conquest of the southern coalition, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron, and Akshaf, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains in the Arabah south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills, and in Naphoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army. As numerous as the sand on the seashore, all these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Uh, there is a blue map, or at least there's a map on a blue sheet of paper in your bulletin. If you want to take that out, you may want to uh, follow through the story and note the geographical uh, locations. 
There's an asterisk at the very top of the map just below Dan, the, the crosshatched uh, part of uh, the, uh, that surrounds the city of Dan or the area where the tribe uh, of Dan settled. Just to the south is an asterisk. You'll see Merom there. And uh, the location of this final uh, decisive battle. I want to mention again what an unusual thing it was for these city-states to, uh, to form a federation. They normally couldn't get along at all. Uh, they were almost always at war with one another, but their mutual hatred for Israel and specifically for Israel's God drew them together in this pact. The king's names are given. Jabin, who was the king of Hatzor. Jabin was probably a throne name, as I mentioned, not a personal name. And Jobab, king of Madon. Madon is near the Sea of Galilee. If you can, if you see Chinnereth, or Kinnereth, as it's uh, as it's translated here in, in the NIV, a little town right along the Sea of Galilee, down to the south. Brian Fisher made the astute observation this past week that since he comes from South Canaan, we should probably pronounce his name Joe Bob. But uh, I'll leave that. Uh, for you to determine. Sounds like a middle linebacker for the University of Texas to me. Shimron in the valley of Esdraelon off to the uh, uh, west side of the map. You, you'll note Shimron just below Zebulun and Akshaf in the shadow of uh, Mount Carmel. Text describes this army as huge or vast. Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, uh, writing of this event, about 180 said that there were 100,000 foot soldiers in this coalition, uh, some 40,000 horses, and 20,000 chariots. The Canaanites had refined chariot uh, warfare at this time. They borrowed the idea from the Egyptians. The Egyptians, uh, prior to about the 16th century B.C., used these very light uh, chariots. They're almost like sulkies. The Canaanites added armor to them, beefed up the wheels. They added another spoke or a couple of spokes to the wheels. And if you see pictures of these chariots on a lot of the, uh, lot of the uh, monuments. Uh, they were formidable fighting uh, machines, uh, usually drawn by two stallions. There were two men in the chariots, uh, a bowman and a, and a driver. The bowman was there also to protect the driver. He usually carried a shield uh, for protection at those times when the arrows rained down on them. And then he also fought with a lance or with a bow. Terrifying instruments of war. This was something Israel had not encountered before. Most of the battles up to this time had been in the hill country where the chariots were, uh, couldn't be used. Now they're out in the flat. So for the first time, they're encountering, uh, encountering chariot, uh, uh, chariot warfare. The uh, city of Hatzor is a, a very well-known city in ancient times. There are references to this city that go way, way back, uh, the middle of the second millennium uh, B.C. Very large uh, powerful commercial center on the north-south trade route. Uh, when Abraham uh, first entered Canaan, when he went, passed through the Fertile Crescent down into Canaan, he had to go by Hatzor. Is there there at that time? Commanded the the uh, trade route between Mesopotamia and Egypt. A lot of excavation done there. Uh, uh, Israeli archaeologists by the name of Yigal Yadim. Uh, excavated there in the 50s and the 60s, and he found this uh, just to the southwest of the city, this huge flat plateau. It looks like a truncated cone. A cone said the top cut off. For the longest time, he couldn't figure out what it was for. Finally, they determined that it was a chariot park. That's where they, uh, that's where they parked their chariots and where they could protect them. 
So there was a place for the chariots that are mentioned here, and they could be protected where no one could sabotage them, uh, put sugar in their gas tanks, and so forth. But this was the situation that uh, that Israel faced. They were called upon uh, to fight there. And so it uh, will always be. We're always called upon to to fight new ventures. There are always new sins that keep getting uncovered in our life. As you know, we've been looking at the enemies of Israel as the physical count, counterpart of the spiritual enemies that we face day after day, these uh, enemies of the soul that war against the soul, as Peter puts it. And we're always running into new ones, different ones, ones that we never anticipated before. Our Lord's strategy seems to be to expose first the overt sin, what we would describe as the more gross and obvious sins in our life, the sins of the flesh, And as we begin to take action against these enemies, then he begins to introduce us to the more subtle secret sins of the flesh, the sins of the spirit, which beforehand we never thought of as sin. There are all sorts of things going on within us that we justify because uh, it seems that everyone does them. And then we begin to discover that uh, they're not just personality traits. They are indeed sins that God wants us to deal with. Uh, A couple of years ago, it dawned on me that my shyness uh, had its root in sin, in self-centeredness. I always thought it was uh, just a personality trait. I was born that way, you know. I could justify it uh, because uh, I I got it from some relative. You know, I had some relative that was shy, and those genes are in my bones and my body, and that's that's why I'm uh, retiring and and quiet. Uh, And I'll sit in a meeting. And I won't say anything, even though I want to say something, I won't. And people say, oh, my, it's an admirable trait. Roper doesn't talk very much. He's very quiet and he listens well. Actually, what it is is I don't want to open my mouth and sound like a fool. That's all. You know the old adage, it's better to be quiet and and let everyone think you're a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt. And that, uh, that, that that's uh, somewhat my philosophy. I'm reluctant to say anything because I might say the wrong thing. I look bad. Well, that's self-centeredness. That's all it is. I'm concerned about what people think about me. The same thing would be true in social settings. Go to a party, and I'm the kind of person that gravitates off to the side. You know, I don't like to put lampshades on my head and that sort of thing. And people say, well, Roper is humble. He's retiring. No, I didn't. I just, you know, I... I, I walk into a, a, a room and I start thinking, I wonder what everybody thinks about me. They probably don't like me, and so I will go over in the corner and be quiet where nobody will notice me. Well, that's just sin, that's all. It's just another form of, of self-centeredness, covert, hidden, secret sin that we try to defend. And our Lord won't let us do that. He just keeps opening up and exposing uh, new enemies that uh, exist within our, in our soul. The other thing I would say, and this may found, sound distressing, at first, but I think there's an antidote. I think the more difficult, the more rigorous tests are further on. My experience has been uh, that the more victories I gain, the more difficult the fighting becomes. And the older I get, the tougher the tests. It was certainly true of Abraham. When Abraham was 120 years of age and about ready to retire, he had the hardest test of all. He had to be willing to, to sacrifice his son. As you know, he didn't have to, but he had to... He had to be willing to do so because he had, he had placed that son first in his life and God had to deal with that, with that false love. So it is true. The harder, the more difficult tests 
are uh, sometimes later on. However, God never gives us more than we can stand. You know, I, I sometimes think if Abraham had been offered that test at the first of his life, he could not have handled it. God knew he couldn't take it at that point. God knows our frame. He knows exactly what we're able to bear. Paul assures us that he does not give us anything that is beyond our capacity to endure. And as we learn our Lord's adequacy, then the burdens get a little bit greater because we've learned that there is a corresponding grace. He gives more grace, as James puts it. Our daughter-in-law's brother is a hard hat uh, uh, diver. Uh, he works for the Navy in Subi, in, in, in the Philippines in Subic Bay. One of these guys that goes fathoms deep in these uh, suits that are made to go down that deep. And the reason he can do so is because there's a corresponding inner pressure. As the pressure becomes greater, as he goes to greater depths, they pump more and more pressure into the suit so that there, there is a corresponding grace, we could say. Well, it's true of us. He gives more grace. The greater the pressure, the greater the supply. Uh, uh, Annie Johnson Flint, who certainly uh, should know because she's someone who suffered all of her life. Uh, she was arthritic and had other, other problems. Uh, put it this way. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. His love knows no limit. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus he giveth and giveth and giveth again. So whatever it is that you're facing today, there's a corresponding pressure. These life experiences teach us the sufficiency and the adequacy of Christ so we can trust him for whatever comes comes our way. So when the new things come and the rigorous things come, there is a corresponding uh, supply. Now, uh, let's uh, let's read on. Verse 6. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid. I don't know about you, but if I saw that vast horde gathered in the plain of Israelon, I would be frightened out of my wits. Uh, these uh, chariots were shock troops. They were driven right into the foot soldiers. Joshua had no way, no way to meet this uh, this attack. He wasn't equipped for it. He was frightened. And God says again, don't be afraid. He doesn't get impatient. Uh, he, he does not, as the King James put it, upbraid us. James 1 uh, describes those times when that are really tough, when we're really under the gun, when there's a lot of heat on us, and we don't know what to do. We're confused. We're frustrated. James says, just ask God what the next step is. And he gives without, and the King James says, upbraiding us. That is, he doesn't, he doesn't point out our weaknesses to us. I like John Bunyan's uh, translation of that phrase. He says he, he gives without twitting. I had to look up that word twitting in a dictionary. I had no idea what it meant. To twit someone is to point out their weakness. God doesn't do that. When we come to him and say, what do I do next? He, you know, I'm struggling in my marriage. I don't know how to handle this situation. And we come to him and we ask. He does not say, what? Are you back here again? I told you yesterday what to do. Why do you keep bothering me? I have so many people that I need to keep my eye on. 
please go find somebody else to give. He doesn't do that. You see, he doesn't do that. He doesn't twit us. He doesn't turn away from us. He continues to uh, to provide. And that's exactly what he does for Joshua. He says again for the hundredth time, don't be afraid. Don't keep on fearing. Because by this time, tomorrow, and he says, the battle will be over and you will have won. I will hand all of them over uh, to Israel's slain. Now, sometimes God works a miracle on us like this. He says, by this time tomorrow, the battle is won. But not always, as we've seen in the past. Sometimes the battle is more prolonged. Sometimes it's more, it, it, it's protracted. It's strung out over a long period of time. We have to understand that God is the one that establishes the strategy. He may, in one instance, give us immediate victory. He may, in another, have a struggle with the sin for a time because it's through that struggle that we that we learn dependence, you see. And that's all right. We have to give him the right to establish the time and the terms of our deliverance. And we shouldn't feel guilty if we're struggling against some sin. Uh, we, you know, Maybe your problem is temper. You keep losing your temper and you find that, that you're doing all right for a while. And then your husband or your wife does something and you blow up and you think, oh, I'm gaining, I thought I was gaining ground, but I'm losing it. Well, what that failure does is just cast you back on the Lord again. And you begin to rely upon his strength. Remember, Joshua was told that that the enemies he faced would not be cleared out all at once. Some would be left in the land to teach Israel how to do war, how to make war. And that's very often what, what happens. God will let us struggle for a while. So we'll keep hanging on to him. We'll keep trusting him. Now, uh, but, as he puts it, uh, in the case of, uh, of Israel and Joshua, uh, by this time tomorrow, the victory is yours. I, I mentioned some time ago that very often someone will stand in the congregation or will have a time of uh, reflecting back on the victories that have been gained. And someone will say, I, I had a, a problem with uh, uh, chemical dependency of some sort, uh, a crack addiction, and I, uh, I asked for deliverance and and, and I was delivered. I've never had any desire since. And somebody else will be sitting there and they'll think, that isn't true of me. You know, I, I've been uh, dry and sober for, uh, for 28 uh, days and every day is a struggle. And every day I get up and I think, you know, I, 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 you know the, the desire, the hunger is there. And I, and I just have to struggle through the day. And, and it's, it's just really been difficult. Well, you see, God has the right to establish the time and the terms of our deliverance, whether it's tomorrow or the next day or the next day, it's his prerogative to establish uh, the, uh, the deliverance. Well, let's, let's read on. Uh, the course of the battle itself is described in verses 7 through 9. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. Uh, and uh, the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. Again, this was not Israel's victory. They had to fight. They had to take sword in hand. They had to engage the enemy. But it was the Lord who gave them the victory. The Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon. You look on the map, you locate Tyre on the west coast up in the, in the region of the Sidonians. Sidon is just a little bit south of, of Tyre. 
to Mizrafath Mayim, again another little town over near the Mediterranean Sea, to the valley of Mizpah on the east and to the north of Hatzor, until no survivors are left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and he burned their chariots. That was in response, in obedience to the command that is that is given in verse 6. Don't be afraid because by this time tomorrow I'll hand all of them over to Israel slain. You're to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. That sounds... Uh, uh, very inhumane, particularly to those of you who love horses. But let me tell you, it is probably better in the long run to have been a hamstrung horse than to be a, a, a horse who uh, who was involved in warfare at that time. Uh, the life expectancy of a of a chariot horse was very very short because one of the ways that they uh, they met the attack of the of the of the charioteers was to fire arrows right into the horses if they could disable the horses and they could blunt the attack. So if you were a horse, you probably would not want to be a, a horse who, uh, who drew a chariot. What actually happened is that they disabled the horses so they could no longer pull chariots. They couldn't even pull a plow. I talked to a veterinarian friend of mine this last week, and he said that essentially uh, the horse was disabled. The uh, tendon just above the hock was severed so that the horse, uh, they could get around and they could graze and uh, they could uh, live to... Uh, to, uh, to a long life, but they were uh, they could not be used in warfare, nor could they be used uh, to do work. But it's a pretty good deal for the horse. You know, they just cut the horses loose, and they they would graze to uh, to happy old age. But they couldn't be be used in in war. Now, why why were they told to burn the chariots and hamstring the the horses? Well, it's very interesting. Israel was never permitted to have chariots uh, in Deuteronomy 17. In the law of the king, the king was told not to multiply horses. That's the sort of thing that kings love to do, and we still love to do it. We trot out our armies and our nuclear warheads and all of our war machines, and we, we uh, draw them across uh, uh, Red Square or, or up and down the streets of Washington, D.C., to establish that we are safe and secure. And essentially what it is is a trust in our weaponry. Now, I believe in a strong military defense. We live in a, we live in a fallen World and it makes sense to maintain that sort of posture. But I also believe that ultimately it's in God that we must trust. We must not trust in our chariots. We must not trust in our warheads or in mutually assured deterrence. We must trust in God because he's the one who determines the course of, of human history and the, uh, the result of, of our warfare. Let me read a psalm to you. Psalm 20. Verse 7, some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the Lord our God. Psalm 33 reads, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope for his love. In other words, Israel was to trust God and not their, not their weapons. They, they had to believe that God would continue to fight for them. Why? Well, because our, our warfare is not fleshly. It is not physical. It is not against flesh and blood. It is against principalities and powers. Our weapons are, 
are spiritual weapons. They are the weapons of love and obedience and the proclamation of, 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 of the word and dependence upon God. These are the weapons with which we, we wage war. We don't count on our intellect and our education and our background and our strength and the size of our arms and how much we can bench press and all of the other things that men are inclined to, to look to for strength. Our, our strength is in God and his resources. In God we trust. One of my favorite stories, I've mentioned it before, uh, is found in 2 Kings 6. I would encourage you to read it today as you have time. Uh, It's about Elisha and his servant. Elisha was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel was involved in a war with Syria. And uh, the the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, would... uh, He'd map out a strategy, and he would make a move, and, and Israel always knew in advance what move he would make. And, and the king of Syria was frustrated. He said to his officers, there must be a spy in the camp. The officers said, no, there's no spy. It's Elisha. He said, that fellow knows what we're going to do before we even know what we're going to do. It's incredible. So Ben-Hadad says, well, we gotta, we've got to take care of Elisha. So they, uh, they found him holed up in the little city of Dothan, which was the place where Joseph was thrown in the pit. You may remember that name. And uh, it's just a tiny little village. And uh, Ben-Hadad brought his entire army, and they surrounded the, the, uh, the city of Dothan. Let, let me read, read the account to you, because I want to get the words, the wording just right. Uh, when the servant of the man of God, the man of God is Elisha, when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, the servant asked, what shall we do? Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Get this. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant looked at Elisha, and he counted one, two. (laughs) And he looked over the walls, and here were horses and chariots and soldiers. And Elisha prayed, oh, Lord, open his eyes so he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, what happened is that for a moment, the the veil was lifted, and Elisha's servant could see what was happening in the spiritual realm, in the heavenlies, as Paul describes it. And out there in the unseen world, the unobservable world, were all of God's uh, troops, his forces, which were there to protect Elisha and his servant. And if you go on and read the account, you'll see how that, how that happened. In uh, uh, Psalm 68, it says, The chariots of the Lord are twice 10,000. Now, it sounds like 20,000, but the Hebrew text actually says 10,000 times 10,000, which is 100 million. Now, what are 10,000 chariots against 100 million chariots? See, now that's reality. We think the real world is what we see and hear and touch and taste. And God says, oh, no, there's a whole world, a whole universe out there that we don't see, we're not aware of. And in that realm, God is fighting for us. And all of the principalities and powers uh, cannot withstand his, uh, his weapons, the spiritual weapons that are uh, placed at, at his disposal and thus placed, placed at ours. So uh, this is why Israel uh, was told to disable the chariots and the horses. They were to trust in God and his weaponry rather than uh, than their own. 
Now, uh, uh, let me read on. I've done it again. Uh, we, we have to have a communion service here in a minute. I'm like the poet from Japan whose poetry no one could scan. When told it was so, he said, yes, I know, but I try to get as many words in the last line as I can. Um, What follows is a summary description of the conquest of the rest of, of Galilee. And we're told that the people of God completely destroyed their enemies. In verse 20, uh, the, the author tells us why. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them to- totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, hamstringing horses is one thing. Slaughtering people is another. I'm sure this, is, this raises grave moral questions in your mind. We will talk about this passage later. I want to come back to it in a, in a future message. I simply want to say at this point that this is not a matter of God... Uh, singling out certain individuals and saying, I'm going to harden his heart, harden her heart. And that's not it at all. Brian uh, uh, Fisher made the observation this last week that sun softens wax and it hardens uh, clay. And, and, and this is uh, the principle that is enunciated here. God shines his truth into human hearts. And those hearts that are receptive to that truth are softened by it. Those that are not are hardened by it, which is why Jesus said we're not to cast pearls before swine. We're not to try to force truth on people who are not interested in it, who will profane it, because truth unheeded always brutalizes people. It dehumanizes them. And this is what happened. Uh, I will develop this more later. But the Canaanites had 400 years of witness to the grace of God. started with Abraham 500 years before Around 2000 B.C., Abraham came into this land. He began to make proclamation in the name of the Lord. He, pronounced the, he announced the good news. And that, uh, that evangelizing uh, was carried on by Isaac and then by others in the land, Melchizedek and a number of other believers. The, the Canaanites had multiple opportunities to respond to God's grace. They resisted it. They hardened their hearts. And there was nothing more that, that could be done. I just want to say in... In short, is for something you to think about. Again, we will, uh, I will elaborate later. We need to understand that the preservation of human life is not the highest good. The highest good is the preservation of truth, the maintenance of truth. And sometimes human life uh, is sacrificed in order to, uh, to preserve the truth. We'll, we'll talk more about that later. Um, I want to note that Joshua destroyed the Anakites. That was the first enemy they encountered. When Israel came to Kadesh Barnea, they sent the spies into the land. They turned back because they were afraid of the Anakites. They had to go back and fight them again. And I suppose the principle to be gained is that God will not permit us to run and escape our enemies. Uh, he will keep bringing us back to face the thing that we fear. And then we will conquer it by faith. So, we're told, Joshua took the entire land. Just as the Lord had directed Moses. And he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions, and the land had rest from war. And then in chapter 12, you have a list of the defeated principalities and powers, the kings and their cities, which were conquered. And the interesting thing about this list is that as you read through it, you'll know, and you compare it with a map of Canaan, (coughs) pardon me, you'll discover that there are numerous cities that were not included in this list. So we're introduced again to this, this idea of now... And not yet. 
now and not yet. That's a theme that, that, that continues all the way through the book. When we become believers, we are given our inheritance in Christ. Everything that we are ever going to receive is given to us at that point. We are given the Holy Spirit. We are given eternal life. We are given all of God. There's nothing more to be gained in terms of God's gift. But we have to acquire every inch of that on a day-to-day basis. And, and, And this idea of having it all having our destiny fixed, knowing that we are secure for eternity, knowing that God will work with us to perfect us until the day of Christ, knowing that one of, the day, one of these days we're going to see him and we will be just exactly like him is what, what keeps us going. Our, our, we have rest. The, the text tells, tells us that the land had rest, but it's a rest that deepens and intensifies and gets greater. We have victory over sin, but it's a victory that grows. We have the knowledge of God, but it, it's a knowledge that continues. We all grow to ceilings in, in, in various aspects of life. You know, I'm, I finally reached six feet, and now I'm shrinking. I'm down to 5'11", and... And you only get so bright, and uh, you, you know we're always growing to ceilings, but there's no ceiling to grace. You just keep on growing, keep acquiring more and more of what you're already given. I was struck this last week. I was looking up another passage in preparation for this uh, message, and ran across a statement that Moses makes in Deuteronomy seven, when he says, "Here he is, 120 years of age," and he says, "I have just begun to see your glory." It only just begun. And uh, as C.S. Lewis puts it, you, know, you go farther up and farther in, and there's growth and growth and, and growth until finally our Lord comes back and we go to be with, uh, or we go to be with him. And we get it all in the end. When we see him, we will be like him. Let me tell you how I think this works. We, we're like Israel, standing on the edge of, uh, of the Jordan. Trans Jordan, on the east side of Jordan. And as the, as the hymn puts it, we look with wistful eye. We look across Jordan into the, the area that God has promised to give us, and we long for it. We want it with all of our heart. And uh, very often uh, that's about the time that, that the Jordan reaches flood tide. There are all sorts of, uh, we have all sorts of opposition at that point. But we take that very hard step and decide, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to acquire it all. I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow God into the land, and whatever he has for me, I'm, I'm going to secure it. So he opens a way through the, through the river, and we're able to pass over to the other side. And there's no going back. Then you can't go back. And at Gilgal, he cuts off the past. That's where that spiritual circumcision takes place. Our heart becomes circumcised, and... The reproach, the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment of the past is, is taken away and forgotten. And, and, and then we run into Jericho. And as I said, Jericho represents those deeply entrenched habit patterns that sometimes take prolonged effort. And we struggle against Jericho and Jericho falls. And, and then we go up against I and we discover that that inviolable principle that if there is some area of holdout in our life, if we're really unwilling for Christ to be Lord over every aspect of our life, then the, then, then, then the assault is, is retarded and, and we begin to lose ground. 
until we go back and deal with that issue of rebellion and indifference to God. And then there are the Gibeonites to watch for, watch out for these these subtle sins of, of the spirit. The, these even the religious flesh, as we indicated, this tendency to try to do things for God in our own strength. And we see how how sneaky and and how uh, how subtle the flesh can be. And then he begins to speak to us about these sins of the spirit, these hidden away things that we need to do battle with. George MacDonald describes it this way. He, that is uh, God, would have him, his man or woman, rid of all discontent. Now, you never think of discontent as, as sin, but basically it's wanting something more than God. Have him rid of all discontent. All grudging, it is giving with a, with a grudging spirit. All bitterness in word or thought. All gauging and measuring of his own with a different rod from that he would apply to another. He would have no curling of the lip. No indifference in him to the man whose service in any form he uses. No desire to excel another. No contentment by gaining by his loss. No, no contentment at gaining by his loss. He would not have him receive the smallest service without gratitude. Would not hear from him a tone to jar the heart of another. A word to make it ache be the ache ever so transient. From such as from all other sins, Jesus was born to deliver us. That's what he wants to do. He He wants to deal with the enemies that invade against our souls. And we take them on in his strength, one after another, until we meet the last enemy which is death itself. And our Lord has gone through it all. He's experienced every aspect of the journey, every battle that we fight, he's fought. And he won. See, he, Adam, failed. Adam went went up against principalities and powers, and he lost. The last Adam, or the second man, as Paul calls him, won. And in him, we triumph. So we just follow him through the land, just Stay close to him. Keep walking with him. Keep counting on him. He'll determine the strategy. And when we finally face the last enemy, which is death, he will take us through victoriously. Because by death, he conquered death. Now that's what it means to grow in grace. And it all happens because of the Lord's life within. 